Support for today's episode of Truth and Justice comes from the ABC Network's new weekly drama series, Conviction. Each year in America, thousands of people are wrongfully convicted. That's why the Conviction Integrity Unit was assembled. Follow the investigations of this elite team who have only five days to determine if the seemingly innocent should be set free. Inspired by real events and from the executive producer of Criminal Minds, Conviction stars Haley Atwell and premieres Monday, October 3rd at 10, 9 central on ABC. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and in this week's episode, I'm calling upon the Truth and Justice Army to help me try to wrap my brain around this Leonard Mosley interview. One of the disadvantages of working alone is I have no one here to bounce ideas off of or have a discussion with. It's been about two weeks since I recorded the interview with Mr. Mosley, and every time I re-listen to it, I keep flip-flopping back and forth as to whether I believe he was telling the truth or if he was lying to me. This week, I've received more emails and tweets and Facebook comments and messages than I have in the last five weeks combined. So this seemed like a perfect opportunity to get you on the phone with me where we can discuss this interview. I want to hear your thoughts and theories and ideas and questions. So in just a few minutes, the phone lines are going to open up, and you're going to hear other listeners just like you and hear their comments on the interview. Today's episode will also be a good preview as to what's to come in November when we start producing the second episode per week. Starting in the first week of November, I'll be dropping a second episode on either Thursdays or Fridays, where I'll be taking calls and getting feedback from you and having discussions with you, the listeners, about that week's episode. Now, as far as the Leonard Mosley interview is concerned, I'm not stopping here. I've been in contact with Jim Clementi. You all know Jim. Jim is the retired supervisory special agent from the FBI's Behavior Analysis Unit. He's also a writer on Criminal Minds. He was, I believe, the executive producer of the case of John Benet Ramsey TV show last week. And of course, he's also one of the hosts of one of my favorite podcasts, Real Crime Profile, along with Laura Richards and Lisa Zambetti. Jim is helping to put me in contact with a couple of people that I think may be able to help us out. Normally, this is the type of thing I would have Jim review for me, but Jim listens to the show and he's very familiar with the case. And I want somebody with an unbiased ear to listen to Leonard Mosley's interview. Jim is putting me in contact with Jim Fitzgerald, who's also retired from the FBI and is a linguistic analyst. He also appeared on the case of John Benet Ramsey. And also, Jim is putting me in contact with a statement analysis expert, Mr. Stanley Burke. So, hopefully, we'll be able to get all of our schedules in order, and one or both of those gentlemen will be able to listen to the interview and then come on the show and give us their analysis. But for now, for this week, let's get right into your calls. All right, I've got Sonny Levine on the phone from sunny California. How are you doing today, Sonny? I'm good, Bob. How are you? I'm great. Uh, so Mike tells me that you have uh, an analysis of the interview for us to go over. Well, one of the things um, I listened to it about three times. I took about six pages of notes and then revised it because originally I know I said I had like 20-something 20, 20 things to uh, go over. But, um, I mean, for the interest of time, I wanted to, to narrow it down to a few key things. When I was first listening to it, um, you had, you know, during the interview, you had said that he mentioned, uh, that she had been choked four times. And it was true. I agreed with you. It seemed a little forced, almost like he was waiting for you to correct him. And when I went through it, and I started from the beginning, uh, one of the first things I noticed right away is that he always reflects everything from himself and okay. he contradicts himself a lot. To start, right when you brought it up, first thing you said it was, it was Margie because she shoots people. The the problem with that is that she wasn't shot. She was strangled and she had her throat slit. Right. Um, and if he thinks it's Margie, then he contradicts himself again because the whole reason he doesn't think it's Fabian, or Francis, I'm sorry, is because he's not strong enough, he's weak, he's short, all that kind of stuff. 
So that was one of the first things I noticed. Yeah, I noticed too with the, um, I, I thought kind of the same thing about Margie, you know, when he was saying that it was, you know, it was her, she's dangerous, she's violent, she shot her husband, he mm-hmm. said she shot my brother, and then she shot and killed his other brother, which I didn't, I'm not aware of the other brother shooting, uh, and then and then, <laughs> she, and then shot her son. All I was thinking was, it sounds like if Margie does have a violence issue that her M.O. is with a gun and not with a knife. Yeah, and to me, that just, I mean, aside from it being pointless, I, I just felt like it, it tried to, he tried to make him the victim and a hero after the fact when he said he would have shot her, he should have shot her when she pointed a gun at him. That just seemed like a distraction. Another thing that he did that was a contradiction was he said, and he, he did a, this a couple of times when you, inter, when you interviewed him, and I think he caught himself because he did his nervous laugh a few times, but he had said he knew that Ed was helping uh, Elnor around the house. And then like two seconds later, he said, if he had known he was helping, he would have told her it was a bad idea. Again, he's the hero and he's contradicting himself. Oh, that's a good point. Um, yeah, well, there's a couple of them. I'm not, I'm not trying to take up all your time because I know we got a ton of great listeners. Uh, another thing which you pointed out too, and I, and I caught it, uh, he said he was calling to let her know that he wouldn't make it over that night, which is his alibi. Problem is the message he left that he would. So there's a lie. Again, he contradicts himself. And did you catch um, too? Also, that, did you catch too that he seemed to confirm to me that he did leave a message saying he was coming over that night? Exactly. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, he's such a terrible liar. He <laughs> he he's just a bad liar. And I caught I caught you know several things. But then beyond that, if he was only calling to say that he wasn't going to make it, why why did he need to call all day? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, what what he told me was that she wasn't picking up, so he kept trying over and over again. So I guess I well, can yeah, kind of see that if that was the case, but you know, he didn't at trial. He actually specifically stated that he never called her and told her that he wasn't coming and he didn't drive yeah. by well, or stop by or anything. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing that, that makes me think of is, you know, he made it a point to say we were going to get married. Well, if you were going to get married, then that means you care about her. You must love her. If she wasn't picking up and you've been trying to reach her all day, why don't you just stop by after work? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, especially no, well, considering she only lives, you know, she she lives about, I, you know, I made the drive. It's maybe 10 minutes away, mm-hmm. you know, and, and if you know yeah. that she's got a meal on the stove for you, then why, <laughs> you know, why not at least swing by and eat the meal and then go home? I, I, I don't buy it. Well, not only that, but if she's got a meal on the stove and in the bedroom, you might want to go by. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and. Another another one another way he contradicted himself again. This was in a matter of seconds in the interview. He says, "I called her in the morning," and then like right after that, he says, "Oh, I called her around three thirty. Make up your mind." You know, let me get let me go through some other stuff here real quick. Oh, another another thing that stood out real real strong to me was he said that when he got there, the, the police immediately told him that they found his semen that matched him. My question is, how the hell would would they have anything that matched him that they had yet to collect his blood. Yeah, I, I noticed that in, that in that part of the interview, he seemed to be kind of waffling a little bit. He, he seemed very uncomfortable to me in that part of the interview because mm-hmm. he was he was kind of time warp jumping back and forth and back and forth. Um, I assumed that he meant at some point they told him that. I mean, because obviously they couldn't have known that at the, at that time. So I'm, I'm not sure what to make of that. Oh, another big thing that you caught him in. Um, and, and he, he did a nervous laugh on this one. I'm sure you caught it too. He, when you guys were going over, he had mentioned her being choked and you're like, oh, she was choked. And then he says, well, yeah. And then he gets into, well, he says, I only, I got off work at 11. And, um, and then you told him, well, she was killed at 1130. And then immediately right after that, he repeats himself. And then he says, well, I got off work at 1130. Like within a matter of seconds, as soon as you, said what time she got killed that's when he decided he wanted to say instead of 11 when he got off work he got off at eleven thirty. that was another big thing i noticed yeah and there was you know some of that didn't bother me as much only because i actually know that she he doesn't get there until his testimony anyway and and angela's testimony was that he gets off at 11 he takes a shower and then he mm-hmm. it's about a 25 minute drive down there so he wouldn't be there till after midnight anyway and I, I intentionally, when I told him, oh, we know she was killed around 1130. Obviously, we don't know her cause of death. But I just I just said that to see 
I kind of plopped it right in the middle of his kind of timeline there between getting off work and getting there just to kind of see what he said. And yeah, and he he did kind of bounce from 11 to 11.30. And then I think at one point he says, uh, well, yeah, I mean, well, well even, even then, you know, I, I, I get off, I take a shower, I drive there, I wouldn't get there till like 12. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that really, that was kind of, I don't want to say funny, but it was just kind of, it just kind of went along with the theme of his, of his BS was, you ask him a simple question and he struggled. He didn't even answer it. He was too busy trying to make the dates work. And that was, when was your son born? He couldn't answer it. He was too busy trying to figure out the date. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I, it's innocent, but I just, I'm sure I could ask you right now when your sons were born and you'd be able to tell me. Yeah. Why for is sure. He it, why is he too busy? Yeah. <clears> and, and again, I, the biggest issue that I had with, with Mosley, and, and I'll let you go right for this, Sonny, so we can take some other calls, but. Uh, you know, the, the biggest issue that I have is I don't have a baseline for him. You know, I don't know what's, you know, what's his memory normally like? Was he a good father, an involved mm-hmm. father? Or was he, you know, uh, just, just a guy who was kind of mailing it in literally a check every month. And, you know, does, so it's, it's hard to tell with things like that. You know, was, was, was he not remembering his son's birthday <laughs> because he was distracted by all the other stuff? Or is he a guy that, mm-hmm. you know, if anybody asked him when his son was born and he wouldn't really know, I just, I have no way of really, really knowing that. But, but hey, Sonny, th- thanks for calling in, man. It's good to, you know, this, I think it's the first time I've ever actually talked to you. I, I did have one more quick thing I wanted to say. Okay. And, and that is, you had mentioned before you didn't understand why people wanted to meet you. And I'll tell you why. Uh, the reason why, there's three reasons. One is you make people feel important. You know, a lot of times people just go through the regular nine to five and, um, you know, that's it. They're, they're stuck in a routine. So you make people feel important. Uh, you give, you make people feel involved. Um, but then you also make people feel like they're making a difference. So there's your answers. Awesome. Well, thanks, Sonny. I appreciate that. And thanks for calling in, buddy. Take it easy. Yep. Go Noles. <laughs> Bye. All right. I've got, uh, Michael from Dallas, from Dallas calling from Louisiana. How you doing today, Michael? I'm doing fine, Bob. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Mike tells me that you uh, pass through Tyler on your commute every week. Yeah, yeah. I'm coming over here to run this hospital in Louisiana, and every time I pass through Smith County, I'm just like, this brings up all the memories from the your season two. It's just uh, really uh, appreciate the work that you're doing there. Oh, th- thanks, Michael. I appreciate it. So, Mike tells me you have a you have a couple questions for me. What's your first question? Yeah, it's pretty basic. I'm just wondering with Mr. Mosley's, you know, either legitimately not knowing about Lenore's throat being cut or acting like he doesn't. I'm wondering if you had uncovered anything in trial testimony or do we know where he was getting his information from and why he wouldn't legitimately know that her throat was cut? Do we have any evidence that shows that, you know, he uh, was privy to that information? That's kind of the first part of my question. And then the other part is just if we were to show that he, you know, he should have known or he did know, what is the benefit to him of not acting like he doesn't know that her throat was cut? And uh, it just kind of reminds me of a little bit of the that non-sad case where uh, Jen and Jay always stuck to this one phone call. They never wavered from that in all the versions of their story. And maybe there's some legitimate reason why they never wavered. And I'm wondering if it's like some benefit to him to not know that her throat was cut. So that, that's kind of my little two-part question. Okay. To answer your first question, uh, at this point, I do not know for certain one way or the other if he did actually know that her throat was cut. Um, I should know soon. I actually, um, and actually this is the first I'm announcing this is to you here on the air. I just got back two days ago my ruling from the attorney general, uh, on with the, uh, Smith County trying to stop me from getting those records. And the attorney general basically mm-hmm. wrote them back and said, knock it off and give it to him. You got 10 days. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. And so part of that request for me was his interviews, his written statements, his conversations with the defense investigators. So I'll have a better idea to be able to tell in in a more certain fashion what he did know and didn't know. Circumstantially looking at it, I I can't say one way or the other, but it just looks, it, it would be so odd to me for him not to know. I mean, you have Johnny Pryor, who found the body, noted that there was blood all over the place. Kubia Jackson knew that her throat was slit. These are all people that he knows and talks to on a regular basis. You have uh, the fact that he says he talks to her sister. Her whole family, her her sister, her kids, all came to the house that next morning and then helped clean the house out. Well, there was obviously there was a mess. There was blood all over the floor. 
you know, there's all these things that had to be cleaned up. You know, there was this reported in the media. You know, he went through both of these trials. And then when I compare that to the other elements of the crime that he did seem to know, you know, when he, when he knows that the seat was pushed all the way back and he knows that the car was pulled all the way around back, things like that. Right. It's like, how does he know all these details and doesn't know the other? And then we have, you know, the, the defense investigator, Tim Lowndes, says that when he interviewed, when he interviewed him, he said that he thought he was a suspect because he had intimate details. He knew the position of the body the layout of the crime scene. Now, he does not say in there that he knew the cause of death. So we won't have that answer until I get this open records request back, and then hopefully we will. As far as the second part of your question, as why would he lie about it, I, I don't I don't necessarily think if he's lying, and I and I still, I mean, I, and, I, and like I said before, I'm not bullshitting about this. I honestly don't know whether he was telling the truth or not at this point. I, I'm still kind of baffled by it. But if right. if he was... I think the motivation for doing that is simple. I mean, it would be if he's lying, then we're dealing with a, a, a sociopath, you know, which, you know, obviously assuming he was guilty or let's say that he was guilty. It's someone who who brutally murdered this woman, fled the scene and then allowed somebody else to go to prison for the crime that he committed. You know, a guy who's married with a child and a child on the way. So it fits kind of both ways so because if he is the guilty party in order for someone to do those things and, and then you can even go back even further the fact that you know he has two different women both elnora and angela walker who both think that they're in a very committed relationship with him when clearly he's playing them both you know th these are all indicators of a sociopath you know and i'm not of course a clinical psychologist i'm not diagnosing him but there's certainly indicators of that and so then when we go back to him telling me in in a, in a, I'll say a pretty convincing way that he doesn't know what the cause of death is it fits with that behavior you know somebody who has those sociopathic tendencies tend to be very manipulative they tend to be very good liars and i think that the purpose behind that for him it would be very simply just to just throw me off the track you know knowing if he knows that i'm the one who's investigating you know if he put two and two together between Francis's brother telling him that I had come by and decided to, you know, I, I'm going to go ahead and talk to him. But I, if I can just act like I don't know what the cause of death was, that will certainly throw him off the track, which it did. I mean, it does. How could he be the killer if yeah. he didn't know? So I, I think it's as simple as that. I don't I can't see any other motivation other than just to try to get me to believe that he doesn't know the cause of death and therefore back off of him as a suspect. Yeah, I guess it could just be that simple. I was thinking maybe there was like some reason why he was specifically acknowledging that he knew that she was strangled, but not that he that she was stabbed. I, I didn't know if there was something sure. forensically that was advantageous to that or whatever, but it, it sounds like it could just be if indeed the hypothesis were to be true that he's, you know, manipulating, then I guess it could be that simple. It's just a simple, uh, really a tactic just to kind of throw you off the scent, I guess. Yeah, and I have had it suggested to me by a few listeners that have emailed in and said that what if he was there, had the argument with her, and choked her and left and thought she was dead, and someone else came in later and killed her, which, I mean, would be pretty hell of a bad night, but uh, that's that's something else uh. that's, been, that's been thrown around, is that he thought he killed her by strangling her, and uh, someone else finished the job. Mm, that's interesting. Yep, and so... All right. Well, anyway, I want to thank you for calling in, Michael. It's good to hear from you and uh, give Tyler a salute on your drive-by next week. Yes, sir. And congratulations on uh, getting that ruling. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Michael. Have a great day. All right. Have a good one. Bye. All right. I'm on the air with Kimberly from the United Kingdom. How are you doing today, Kimberly? Hi, Bob. It's a fantastic show, and I really applaud you for all your amazing efforts. Thank you for that. It must be late, late in the U.K. right now. It is. Yes, it's 1230 in the evening. <laughs> All right. Well, well, we'll get right to your points before we uh, let you get to bed at some point here. Uh, Mike tells me you have four points. Oh, yeah. in that would be fantastic. I, I, I'm calling because I, there's two things Leonard Mosley said and two things he didn't say, which really bother me. Mm -hmm. So first of the things that he said, there's a lot of really casual misogyny, which I find worrying. So he got women... You know what women are like. You know how women are. They take your personal stuff. And 
given that this is a crime against women, these kind of casual comments suggesting, oh, well, yeah, all women will get mad and shoot you and and want to get pregnant by you and take your stuff, I find very disturbing. I also find disturbing his casual assertion that he had no idea what happened inside the trailer, didn't know how she died, didn't know the phone was ripped off the wall, not just for the reasons that you said in the episode on Sunday, but when someone dies under the age of 50, it's a shocking event. And this is not like Aleppo or another extreme circumstance where people are just dying everywhere. It would just be natural curiosity to find out why someone that you were thinking about marrying died. And it's not like the details were difficult to find. So effectively, he's saying, yeah, she died, and I just didn't give a toss to find out why. That doesn't sound like someone that you plan to marry. That doesn't sit right with me. Sure. Now, the things that he didn't say... The first thing is there's a complete lack of concern for Elnora. He was supposedly this great friend that he was even thinking about marrying her, and then he casually let things slide, like, well, yeah, that meal was for me, and I tried to call her, and she made it anyway. No big deal. But you, you would have thought, if you were completely innocent in this situation, that you'd be like, man, she made that meal for me, and, and it just bothers me that that's the last normal thing she did and then this monster got her and at the end of your conversation with him where he's ah yeah that's awful that the prosecutor should be in jail and yeah they should convict innocent people that's a waste of taxpayer money okay those are fair points and i agree with him about the prosecutor going to prison but you would have thought that as a close associate of the victim, that your first reaction would be, ah, oh, man, those prosecutors further dishonored Elnora. She didn't deserve that. Now they've made it worse by putting the wrong person in prison, and the monster is probably still out there. And he didn't have that reaction, and that I find worrying. Right. But even more worrying is if you have a close rush with something awful, that affects you. And, and as I told Mike, I have a personal experience with that because my mother was very nearly on one of the flights flown into the Twin Towers in 9-11 and at the last minute changed her flight and just missed out on this, this horrible situation. And Leonard Mosley is saying he's in the same position because he's telling you, yeah, I, I would have gone over there, but at the last minute there was this change in my work schedule and I couldn't get my work clothes. And so that's why I wasn't there when the murderer arrived. Okay, well, what that means is, I mean, surely it would play on your mind in those moments where you are in downtime or you've had a bad dream. You would think like, wow, if only I'd kept to my normal schedule, I'd have been there. And maybe the two people would have changed this person's mind when they showed up and they wouldn't want to tackle two people or between the two of us, we could have fought him off or, whoa, man, I'm barely missed out of being murdered myself and to just have no like well yeah okay i just have to buy work clothes no big deal that just seems wrong yeah i think those those are all good points and, and some of them i think can go either way i'll go back to the beginning you talked about the misogyny yeah mm -hmm. i definitely noticed that too and, and on a couple of different occasions you know when you know, he said, oh, you, you know, you know how women are. They go through your stuff and kind of blamed the pregnancy on Angela telling him that she couldn't get pregnant. But then following that up with, well, you know, I should have been smarter and protected myself. But he's got some what, what I noticed more so because he may just be a misogynist. I mean, this may be his personality. He just could be an asshole. But he had some contra things that, that severely contradicted that, which I, was what I found more odd. So he says things like that. But at the same time, is he's he's talking about what a strong woman Elnora is, and how someone would have to be, you know, really strong to get the upper hand on her, and really, to, you know, talking about her. I was listening, thinking, like he's talking about her in a way that I would talk about my wife Becky. You know, that, that you know, I I, I re respect her as as a woman and as a, as a person, and uh, you know, I see her as a strong, both strong-willed and and strong-bodied individual. So it was like these. For me, it's like, well, which one of those is not really his personality? That's what I, that, that's why when I see such broad things that are on complete opposite ends of the spectrum like that coming from the same person, you know, it, it, it leads me to believe that it's, it's very possible that one of those was fabricated. 
one of one of those is how he really feels, and the other one is the way he's trying to present himself as feeling. So um, I, I agree. Well, I, Sorry, I, go ahead. I would suspect that this is the the misleading rather than his genuine opinion of women. That the misogyny is probably more the real opinion, and the reason for that is all of his answers seem to set up. Well, there's no reason I could have done this. So he, his big misogyny comes out first against Margie Dews. Then when you don't seem to take the bait, that's a ridiculous story. That oh yeah, my grown-up son suggested, can I sleep with you? And she said no. So I'm gonna go kill her. I mean that like that happens all the time. That that's just crazy. So right. he applies this to her. And then when you don't buy it, then he comes up with the, well, yeah, no, I could have fought it. Okay, I, that does seem to contradict, except that given the complete absence of empathy for Elnora, well, yeah, yeah, she was really strong and powerful, but I, I'm not really that bothered that her murderer wasn't convicted. I just didn't bother that my taxpayer buddy is going to pay out an innocent man that shouldn't have been convicted. Right, yeah. and, and the, <laughs> I noticed a few different things emotionally from him. One is exactly like you said that he didn't seem to have empathy towards her. You know, he 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 never really sounded like, man, I miss her. Or, it was terrible. I mean, it was it was. And and when you listen carefully at the beginning of the interview, uh, you know, I don't think I put all of the the intro into the episode. But I think I said that what I had asked him mm. at the very beginning was, I'm doing a story about these crimes in Smith County. I'm working on the Elnora Griffin's murder case. And I'm I'm mm-hmm. talking to you because I wanted to know if I could get some background on Elnora. And then immediately he started telling me who he thought did it. It was Margie and they didn't get everybody involved. Like there was he ne- he never did tell me about Elnora, which was the actual question that I asked him. In regards to what you said, how you know he supposedly loved her and was going to marry her and but didn't bother to find out how she was killed. I, I again, as I've I've said in a previous call and and on the show last week, was that, you know, I, I find it hard. I don't know that he didn't know, but I find it hard to believe. But as far as him not finding the cause of death, the way he presented it, he could have thought also that he did know the cause of death. You know what I mean? Where if if he was told or thought that she was strangled, that could be why he wasn't, you know, looking further into it because he thought that he did know how she was killed. Uh, is a possibility, just playing, you know, devil's advocate and looking at it from both ways. But, yeah, you would think that when you, when you compare that, again, and I said this in another call, too, that he knew such intimate, specific details about the crime. You know, that the, the car seat was pulled all the way back and the car was pulled all the way forward. Uh, the meal was still on the stove. It just seems really unlikely to me that he would know all of that and not know that her throat was slit. As far as... Well, so, all so, the weird details that would be... If you were outside, so he knew about the towel, he knew the car and the, the seat was back. But they also reacted the same way about the phone cord. And I find that equally unbelievable. You know, they, oh, I had no idea the phone was yanked off the wall. Uh, that, that's new to me. I never heard. You would have thought, given how we know David Dobbs presents cases, that's a detail anybody in the area would be associated with. That if you personally were associated with the victim, people would constantly be coming up to you. Hey, did you hear that latest news story that says this? So it's just not credible that even if he didn't make an effort to find the details himself, that people wouldn't come up to him. Hey, I know you're associated. I heard you testified at that case where that woman got her throat slit. It just looks like all the details are presented. So it builds an alibi as opposed to, it just strikes me that you'd be more reflective. I also heard people saying this. I don't know if it's true. There's no reflection. He gave you just a very, oh, no, this is true. Really? It's not true? Right. No, that's not simple. Yeah, and I noticed, I noticed too, when you mentioned the empathy that, yeah, like I said, that he didn't show empathy towards Elnor. But the other thing that I found very odd was I told him, and some of that was off the, was, was cut out of the interview for time's sake, but I mean, I directly told mm-hmm. him, that Francis Johnson told me that he thought that Leonard killed her and his re what I expected out of that was that he would be angry. I mean, if somebody came to me and told me that Mike told them that I killed someone, I would be pissed at Mike. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, his reactions weren't, it just, it, and I don't know, I'm not an expert in this field, but it was, it, it was odd to me that he had no empathy towards Elnora. And it was even odder to me 
that he didn't have any anger towards a man that supposedly accused him of murder, which was, you know, was, was fabricated by me just to just to get the a reaction. Uh, but I found that very strange. And then, like you said, the, the being kind of a near miss for him, just the whole thing with the the dinner on the stove and all that, like I would expect some kind of survivor's guilt, something more of a reaction there and something to more concrete those memories into his mind because he was, you know, if he's innocent, then he just by a fluke coincidence managed not to be there when the murderer was there. Somehow he has. How you not react to that just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Because if you come with a close brush, you know, if if a lorry nearly runs you off the road or a tree falls down, right, you remember that <laughs> because you personally had a very – and this would be, that grumbling you hear behind you are my dogs who are – they hear a cat fight out of the street. So I apologize for the noise in the background. <laughs> all right. Yeah, I, I agree with that, that he – he really, I, I yeah, you think that that would concrete him more. But then again, it also may play into if he truly is kind of a misogynistic person, he may not have cared either. You know, like, you know, because I try to look at this through the lens of what if he's innocent and he's saying these things and what if he's guilty if he's saying these things. If he's innocent and we compare the other statements, you know, someone who is truly a misogynist just sees women as a lesser class of person. And it may not have affected him. He obviously, you know, he had he had two different women at the same time that we know of. And mm-hmm. he obviously didn't respect either one of them uh, to be doing the things that he was doing. So, you know, it, it could play into that. But It could play into that. But even as a misogynist, though, I just don't see how if you knew nothing and you had no association at all with the crime the near miss thing would not in any way resonate with you because that's also not something he said in the trial apparently either though we don't have the complete transcripts so we don't know that for certain well, we, we but do, i'm sure we, he would have said if he thought of it we do have the complete trial transcripts and no he didn't i i i've yet to hear him say man i should have been there if i was there she wouldn't get killed but then again what we don't have are his police interviews which we should be getting here mm-hmm. very soon all right, all right, Kimberly. Well, I want to thank you again for calling in, especially uh, after midnight all the way from the UK. I'm going to let you uh, take care of those dogs and get to bed, but thanks again for calling in, and hopefully we'll talk to you again next time. That's great. Thank you for all your wonderful work. You're welcome. Thanks, Bye. Kimberly. Bye. All right, I'm on the air with Jennifer from New York. How are you doing today, Jennifer? Great, Bob. How are you? Doing really well. How are you? You already told me you're doing great. I'm good, thank you. <laughs> all I'm right, so... jump into it. Okay, let's hear it. So, um, commenting on, you had said that your initial reaction to the interview that you thought that Mosley was innocent, and usually I uh, tend to agree with you, although on this point, my initial reaction was that I felt like he thought he was pretty slick. I got the overall impression that he was trying to get away with something, not necessarily, quote-unquote, the murder, but I thought he had an overall knowledge that was more than what he presented, and at the end of the day, I don't necessarily think he did it. However, I think he's trying really hard to make sure that he keeps the spotlight off of himself. Okay, well, what was, was there anything specific that made you feel that way? Yeah, there were a couple of things. Um, number one, I don't see any way how he possibly could not know the cause of death, number one, with the amount of people that he was in contact with that knew Elnora personally. That was a big one for me. Okay. Also, too, he knew so many details, like the location of the car, the semen on the body and the bed. And when he questioned if it was in the body, I thought that was a bit of a cocky statement on his point, no pun intended, um, (laughs) because he knew that oral sex was performed. I could be wrong, because like I said, I don't know necessarily whether or not he's the murderer. But I just, 
there were so many things like he was he couldn't remember if his child lived in the house, but yet he could specifically remember what day on a what time on a Friday he went to work. I just thought that was all very odd. Yeah, there was there was a lot of oddities there in in, in you know, what he had said about the the semen when I said that there was semen on her body. You know, he just kind of nonchalantly said, "If well, if there was semen on her body, then there should have been semen in her body." And uh, you know, I hadn't really thought right. about that. If he, you know, happened to know that there wasn't semen in her body, and and another thing that I I had pointed out to me from several listeners this week that I had kind of missed was, you know, or he had he had said that, well, if there's semen on her, but you know, semen on the scene, then that's normal because I'm her boyfriend. But then later said. That that's not mine. You can stop saying if that's not mine. But then a couple people pointed out to me. I went back and listened. And they were right. He was saying that there was semen in the bedroom. That that would be normal. But when I said there was semen on her body, that's when he said no. That's not mine. There was no semen on the body. But then then again, then I wonder. He didn't have any concern about semen being in her or in the bedroom, but semen on her. That's where he was like, no, no, no. That's I know for a fact that's not mine. But I wonder if he, you know, again, as I said in other calls, trying to look at it through two lenses, one looking at it if he is innocent and another if he is guilty. And, you know, if he is guilty, if you're looking at it through, you know, that, that hypothesis, then maybe it was a uh, the, the risk of sounding gross, a, a pullout situation or, uh, like you said, an oral right. sex or something like that and not aware of the fact that if her body brushed against wherever that semen was that it would then be on her body. I'm just not sure. I'm not sure, you know, and I get what you mean by he, he thinks he's being really slick, I think is how you put it. And yeah, again, it just depends on how you're looking. What I've said to several people this week is I've been discussing the case and I'm, and I'm bringing in more experts. I've got um, Stanley Burke, who is an FBI statement analysis expert, uh, he was actually on the John Benet Ramsey show with Jim Clemente, as well as Jim Fitzgerald, who was also on that show. In uh, it was a or is a forensic linguistic analyst. They're going to be mm-hmm. analyzing the statement too to give us a little better opinion. Because all I keep thinking is, he one of two things is true: either he's telling the truth, or if he's lying, he is a very good liar. He's a convincing liar. And I don't know if he's just, you know, if he's a sociopathic type of person who is very manipulative and a good liar or if he's telling the truth. Because it's, it's kind of got to there's like no gray area in the middle there with him. You know, his every. Yeah, it's pretty hard to tell. But I feel like in the same respect, he's had over 20 years to perfect his story. And the fact that you mentioned that. Francis Johnson's brother was the one that did his concrete. He knows you've been looking for him. You were not a surprise. And I feel like he knew from the beginning exactly who you were. And the thing that clued me into that was that you went and you knocked on his door and you, if I remember correctly, forgive me if I'm wrong, he, you rifled around the area on your way back to the car and you were almost there and he came out. I just kind of got the sense that he was trying to collect himself to present himself um, as, well, I, for lack of a better term, innocent as he could. I, I wonder that too because, um, you know, I, I had went twice and the first time I was there, I knocked on the door several times, no answer, was yelling for him, no answer, walked around back to the barn, and of course I'm yelling, you know, Mr. Mosley, Mr. Mosley, the whole time because, you know, I'm I'm out in the middle of the country and I'm just some strange guy walking around, I didn't want to get shot, and uh, knocked right. on the door some more and left, well, and I noted all the vehicles that were there, and there's a, there's a big pickup truck that I assumed was his, seat was pushed pretty far up in it, would seem to fit his height. And so I left and then the next day I come back again, the exact same vehicles are in the driveway. I knock on the door several times. This time the main door is open. Only the storm door is closed. Knocked on that several times. I'm hollering into the house that I'm there. Uh, no response. Walk around back. Same thing. Come back out. And then I'm wondering, are any of these vehicles his? So I was actually taking with my foot and, and brushing out the tire tracks out of the dirt so that if we came back later, that we would have uh, you know, a better idea if a vehicle had pulled out and left 
since we'd been gone. Right. Uh, so I was there for a good 20 minutes and then got into the car. We were talking in the car for a little. I had uh, speaking of which I guess this is a good time to address. I was waiting for someone to ask and I can't believe no one has yet. Uh, the voice that you heard on the at the end of the podcast, the creepy voice that was in your right ear. Uh, that was I had several. The funny pe- thing is, I didn't hear that. I didn't totally either <laughs> when I was editing, <laughs> uh, because I when I when I do the the final edit, uh, I and, and Mike did the final editing on most of it, but I did the interview, and I I don't do that on with headphones. I do it on my computer. Uh, you know, I'm in a soundproof studio. I don't need headphones to hear it, and I didn't hear it right until I was up north at my cabin in the middle of the woods with no computer or internet when my Twitter started blowing up on my phone this weekend. But what it was, I had several, you know, the, the first day I went, I had, uh, Jason's a guy from, from Tyler that I've gotten to know there that went with me. And then the second, the second trip, uh, he wasn't available, but I had four other people that went with me just to kind of watch out for me. And what had happened was as Mr. Mosley and I were finishing up our conversation, a minivan came pulling in with tinted windows. And apparently one of the passengers in the, in the Yukon was uh, a little paranoid, uh, cause they started saying, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. Who's that? Stop talking, stop talking. But it was, what had happened was when I got back into the truck, I had a wireless mic on and I took my mic off and set it on the dashboard of the truck. And then when he came out, I went out with a different mic and forgot that that one was still on recording in an, in its own track. And that, that's what, that's what that was. So anybody that hasn't seen my, gotten, I, I tried to respond to emails, but there was just too many of them. And, uh, on Twitter and well, Facebook. Well, I saw you put out big attentions to everybody about it. And that's what made me go back and listen. I listened six times and I couldn't find, I couldn't hear it. Yeah. It's about the 36 minute mark. If you have your headphones in, you'll hear it in your right ear. And it is creepy. It, it sounds like, cause you know, people were like, well, did you have a microphone pointing at the house and someone was in the house whispering to him to stop talking or what was that? But it was, Unfortunately, it was nothing really that exciting. It was just my dumbass left the microphone on the truck, and one of my passengers was paranoid. <laughs> I do have one quick uh, logistical question, if you know the answer. Okay. How I know Francis Johnson was five foot ten, and Ed was six foot seven. How tall is Leonard Mosley? I I don't have an exact height. He was taller than I thought he was. But the, he was wearing jeans that were kind of coming down over the bottom of his shoe because I was wondering. He looked to me to be about five foot six, maybe, when he was standing there okay, talking to me. I did see a picture of him, and I thought he looked fairly short. Yeah, he did to however, me, too, in the pictures. Yeah, but however, with her being four four, it wouldn't take somebody. And again, I'm not implicating him, and I'm not saying it's him, but it wouldn't take anybody incredibly over five feet to be able to overpower somebody who's four foot four and 104 pounds. No. So I just thought that his argument on that front was not the best argument he could have presented. But like I said, I just feel like he remembered things that would take the spotlight off of him. And then he kind of was blurry on the details that in what could be his estimation didn't really matter. Yeah. That was my ultimate conclusion from all of it. Yeah, I I noticed the same thing. Well, hey, Jennifer, thank you for calling in. We appreciate you. You made some good points and some good questions, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to explain the mystery voice while you're on the line. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Have a good evening. You too. Take care, Jennifer. All right. Bye-bye. All right, you were on the air with Truth and Justice. Mike tells me that you wanted to remain anonymous, so we'll call you Mrs. Anonymous. Um, what, did you have a question for me? <laughs> Thanks so much, Bob. Yeah, long-term, long-time listener, listen from the beginning. Really appreciate getting in today. Hope all is going good so far with these calls. I have so many questions, but I think the most salient one is what you thought of the fact that Mosley. He was basically dodging your question. You first mentioned him not seeing, him saying in the trial that he hadn't seen her for, uh, you know, two weeks. He dodged it. Then you came back and specified that the semen was a fresh puddle, and he immediately started dodging it. And that's when he um, made the comment that, well, you know, um, whoever killed her must have been smart in order to get away with it. And you mentioned that it was out of context, and I agree, but what troubled me is what I think he said leading up to it 
it's not leading up to it, but or directly following, but within that same set of statements, he reasoned with you as though you would, you know, obviously reason the same way that anybody who was stupid enough to have at first raped her is going to not want to go to jail and is just going to want to kill her. Um, but he said it in, in the third person until he got to the, to the statement where he said, I don't want to go back to the pen so and this. And he changed it into the first person and then went back to the third person. And um, I know you've worked with Jim Clemente on analyzing linguistics. And I don't know if that stuck out to you at all or if that caught your attention. It didn't. Actually, I hadn't even noticed it until you just said that. So, so I'm going to have to take your word for it for the moment until I have a chance to go back and review that. I do remember that part of the conversation. I remember him saying that if you go in and, and you know, you rape somebody, and I remember him saying that, you know, you don't want to go back to the pen, but I, I guess I didn't notice that he, so you're saying he had switched up the, uh, to first person then and said, I don't want to go back to the pen or I don't want, you know, I'm, I'm going to end this. Yeah. He, yeah. He said, I don't want to go back to the pen. I'm going to stop this. And okay. has he been in the pen? I mean, had he been to prison? Not that I'm aware before? of. No, I've looked at his criminal okay, record and I haven't so, seen that he ever has. Okay. Well, and, you know, the other thing, so I've studied graphology, handwriting analysis, mm -hmm. and that's something that you look for when you see something kind of out that, that is an outlier. But another thing you look for and that I noticed in his interview is when you get a, a really good sample of handwriting, it usually is at least one full page of writing. Right. And if you, if you apply that to the interview, um, the same principle, I think, would stand, which is that what somebody writes at the end of the sample is more telling than what they write throughout, you know, from the beginning through the middle. And that's because it's harder to hold on to whatever you're projecting through to the end. And it's right. more revealing, you know, in terms of their subconscious. So when he thinks that he's off the hook and he's convinced you, um, you know, that he's, he's this innocent guy and you guys are both friends and you appreciate his brickwork at his house and, you know, thanks so much. That's when he sticks in. Oh yeah. Well, I, by the way, I knew about you investigating this for the last three months. Right. And that to me just, it really stuck out as, um, you know, his subconscious just telling on himself yeah, among that's other things. I did write several things in an email, but I don't know if you noticed that either if you felt like that carried more weight the fact that he stuck it in at the end yeah i did actually a little bit and i'm, I'm glad you said that it's, 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 what a what a cool job and that you you're the first person that's mentioned that you caught on to that but that's precisely why during the conversation you know i told him several times i don't remember how much of this was in because i cut a lot of myself talking out but where i had told him that you know i you know i don't believe this i think that you're innocent you know when i was when i was telling him that francis had accused him of the murder you know, I was, you know, what I was saying that was that part was off the air was, you know, but, you know, I don't believe that. I know you're innocent. And, and it's specifically why I interjected the the comment about the brickwork was very much to make uh -huh. him to make him feel at ease and to make him feel like, OK, this is becoming a comfortable conversation now. It's the same thing that I do when even as it, you know, it's something that's an interrogation technique, but it's also something that I do when I interview people on the podcast because people sit in front of a microphone and they get freaked out. So I try to loosen them up and get their mind off of it to get them to forget that the microphones are there. And this guy was kind of using the same technique. So that's awesome that you picked up on it. I will go back and listen to that. All right. Well, uh, Mrs. Anonymous, thank you so much for calling in and I hope you have a great night. Thank you so much. You're doing a great job. Have a good night. Bye -bye. You too. Thanks. Bye. All right, we're back from our break, and I'm on the line with Allie from Ohio. How are you doing today, Allie? Great. Hi, Bob. Um, so I'm going to jump right into my question because I know you're going through a lot of these. But I wanted to know if you had um, picked up on Leonard saying that he went to Eleanor's house on Friday when the police were there. And I thought that that was really intuitive whether or not he knew the cause of death. I thought that was really strange that he said he showed up you know, the night that they were there, but how would you not know the cause of that? So I didn't know if you heard that in the interview as well. 
I, I did hear it, and I I did know that uh, just from the trial testimony. But actually, I hadn't thought much about it until you just pointed that out. That yeah, he was on the scene with Johnny Pryor, who had found the body and noted that there was blood yeah. everywhere that night. That's a, that's a really really good observation. Yeah, I mean, I know there wasn't blood on the pillow underneath her, but the the rest of the house had blood. And even if he didn't look in and see, if he was there with Johnny and the police and all of the hustle and bustle that must have been going on, it just seems so unlikely that he would not know the cause of death. Well, right. I mean, you had Johnny who saw and noted that she saw that there was blood everywhere. Uh, and she right. told that and, and, and Ed's grandmother was there uh, with her when that happened. Kubia was there on the scene that night. Uh, they would have been talking about it. You had not only all of the detectives uh, and the other deputies that were there working on the scene, but you had the volunteer firemen, you had the EMTs. The the idea that no one on that scene would have said anything about the fact that there was blood everywhere or her throat was slit, it does seem very unlikely now that you bring it up. Yeah, I think that when I heard that, and honestly, I didn't put it together until later on when you said, he went through two trials. How else does he not know? And then I thought, he was at the scene. And I went back and I listened again. And, and I didn't know it was in the trial testimony. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he, I don't know how you'd be on the scene not know that or see it or hear it from someone. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. That's a, that's a great point. So, hey, uh, Allie, thank you so much for calling in. You've given us a lot more to think about. I very, very much appreciate it. No problem. Thank you so much. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Have a great night. You too. Bye-bye. All right. I am on the air with Ramona from Nashville, Tennessee. How are you doing today, Ramona? I'm good, Bob. How are you? I'm doing really, really well. Uh, so Mike tells me you have a question for me about voicemail. I do. So do we know what time that voicemail was left? You're talking about the voicemail that Leonard Mosley left uh, saying that he was coming over that night? Yes. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, yes. due to the stellar investigative work by Detective Waller, we don't. Uh, he testified at trial that there was a message on the answering machine that said that he would be over there later that night, or said that he would be over there later. Uh, and then he said that he doesn't remember what time the call came in, doesn't know what time the call came in, or anything like that. So, And, of course, he didn't write it in his report. So, unfortunately, all we know is that the voicemail was there. Now, when I mentioned it to Leonard, I don't know if you caught, Leonard did confirm that he did leave that message. You know, I said, well, you left her the message saying you were coming over that night on a ranching machine. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, no, the answer to your question is we do not know what time that call came in. Did they ever check her uh, phone bill to see if he had actually called so many times as he claimed? So they kind of checked her phone bill. From what I have, uh, I don't know, just from what was presented at trial, it only shows long-distance calls that she made doesn't have any local incoming or outgoing calls on her records that they obtained or that they presented at trial. And they claimed at trial that they couldn't get local records, which is not true. I know several other cases where they did obtain local phone records, but that's what they claimed. So, yeah, there's just, uh, again, stellar police work. We are left with more questions than answers, unfortunately. That's very interesting. I I would have assumed they would have at least checked on the time of the voicemail, but... It doesn't really surprise me at this point in time. <laughs> well, considering they seem to have deleted that voicemail off the tape, I don't think they were real interested in it. Yeah. Well, I have many questions for you, Bob, but I know everyone else is trying to get in. So thank you so much for all that you do. I enjoy your show every week. Uh, keep up the good work. Great. Thank you so much for calling, Ramon. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yep. Have Bye. a good night. Bye. All right. I'm on the air with Caitlin from Baltimore, Maryland. How are you doing tonight, Caitlin? Hi, it's so good to talk to you. You too, uh, Mike. You're, you're calling in in the you know in the end of the night, so Mike says you had a whole list of things that we've already covered. But he said you had a, a really good point or a question regarding the relationship status between Angela and Leonard and Elnora. So, what do you have for us? I did. I have a couple things. Towards the end, you were saying that Angela's friends said that Angela and Leonard were dating. And then I was thinking that might be what Angela told her friends, but that doesn't always mean that that's true. Um, I feel like especially if she was having a child or had a child, she could have 
thought that they were dating or she could have wanted them to be dating. But if it was just coming from her friends and her, I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know how much of that um, I believe. Yeah, a, a few um, people have brought that up that, you know, just because, you know, and, and I think somebody put it really well in an email. Uh, one of the listeners had said that two people can be in a relationship but be in two different relationships where they both have two different ideas mm-hmm. of what the relationship is. Angela, mm-hmm. at trial, to, the, the thing that caught me was Angela testified at trial, you know, and she's she's under oath, and she said that she had mm-hmm. been living with Leonard for two years and that she had, right. mo- she had moved out, sounded like it was because of Elnora because he was cheating, and then she was living with a friend in that she said that he asked her to move back in and she told him that he needed to make a choice and he did. So she mm, moved that's in. That's right. So it's, it to me, I mean, it's, it's still a possibility, but it's very different just chatting with your friends about your relationship and sitting in a courtroom on a witness stand under oath and uh, yeah. describing your relationship that way. And that's the one point to me that is, not really so much up for conjecture if she's telling the truth, which we don't know, you know, as opposed to, you know, right. just, I think that the relationship is more serious than he does. This is very different. Mm-hmm. If she's saying specifically, he wanted her to move back in. She told him that he had to choose between her and Elnora. I mean, that's a pretty specific set of circumstances for him to not understand that they're in a relationship. Yeah, I get that. I think that makes sense. And then I forgot that he, that she had lived with him and then moved out and moved back in because when he was talking about her living there, he said that he either said she was pregnant or he said that the baby was already there. Which one did he say first? Well, he wasn't real sure. He flip-flopped. At first he said the baby wasn't born yet. And then when he thought mm-hmm. about it, and I told him that the murder was in 93, and then he thought about his son's birthday was 92, he says, mm. so then that would mean the baby was there, but he says That's he doesn't. right. He was like, well, he must have been born then. He right. But then, I, but then I found it odd that he said, I don't remember the baby ever being here. So it makes yeah, me I wonder, was, was, yeah, was the baby staying with someone else? Does it, was he just completely oblivious to what she yeah. was doing with the child? I don't know. And I wonder if he was misremembering the time period, too, if he was remembering a time when she was pregnant and she was there and, um, you know, she's saying she ran up the phone bill and she did this and that. Well, I wonder if that was the year before when when she was still pregnant and then he wasn't actually telling you about or remembering the time she had the baby, which would be the same time that a murder happened. That's a good point. That could That could very well be the case. I don't know. Well, it was really interesting conversation. Yeah, some other things that I told Mike or some of the things you guys talked about, but um I kind of had the same impression as you where he's either the best liar I've ever heard or he really has nothing to do with it. Right. And I'm and I'm to be honest, I'm still in that same boat with it. I don't it's I feel like it's gotta be one or the other and I'm I'm not ready to make a determination on which it is yet. But, Caitlin, I want to thank you for, for calling in and for your input. Hope things mm-hmm. are going well out there in Baltimore. <laughs> they are. Thanks so much. It was so good to talk to you. You too. Have a great night. You too. Bye. Bye. All right. we got time for one more call. All right. I am on the air with Stephanie from South Carolina. And, Stephanie, I hear that you're currently in the Atlanta airport. <laughs> I am. I had to call. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm I'm glad you did because uh, Mike told me that you have a question about one of Leonard Mosley's responses, and it's a question that I've had several people email in about too. So it'd be a good chance to address it. So, what did you want to ask me? Absolutely. So when you mentioned that Alnora's throat was actually slit, um, and that's how she died, a few lines later um, in the interview, he makes a comment about. There's blood everywhere, blood on the crime scene everywhere, something along those lines. And it stopped me in my tracks because I thought, well, how does he know there was blood everywhere? He's acting like he didn't see the crime scene and didn't know this. Right. Um, right. That's that, my question. Yeah, and that's a, that's a good I'm glad you asked it because it's a question that other people had. 
Um, you know, there was parts in there where I, where I cut a lot of me talking out so we could hear just Mosley. And like I said, some of the stuff was strategical stuff that I'm not sure strategical is a word, uh, strategic stuff that was, <laughs> uh, that was, uh, some legal strategy stuff. And some of it was just like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I had in order to try to get a response out of Leonard, I had told him that Francis Johnson had accused him of the murder. Uh, and that was to get a response on him. So, and I cut a lot of that stuff out so we could just hear how he was talking in that part. Cause I had a few people say, well, how did he know there's blood everywhere? You never said that. I actually, I did say that right before that clip. I had just cut that whole part out. I was explaining that I'm trying to remember exactly what I said, but it was something along the lines that, you know, Francis says that he walked in and saw her laying there with blood everywhere after he left or something uh, like that. Gotcha. And so that's where that came okay. from. Yep. That was from something that I that had said, sense, but it was no. off the air. Well, thank you for clearing that up. No problem, and I hope you have a. Are you 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 you're at the airport now, so you must be going somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to visit some family. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope you have a a very nice, safe flight, and thank you so much for calling in, Stephanie. I appreciate it. Thank you. Keep up the strong work, Bob. You're doing great. Thank you. Have a great night. You too. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Okay, that was our last phone call for the night, and for all of you that called in and got through, I want to thank you, and I know the whole time I was taking these calls, the voicemail was going crazy, so I know lots and lots of you were trying to get in. Hopefully, a lot of you will be able to get in next time. I love hearing from all of you. You guys added a lot of insight and had a lot of great questions for me. There were, however, a couple of questions that I thought would come up that didn't that I do want to address in this episode. The first one was something that I noticed after recording last week's episode when I continued to review the interview. I realized later that Leonard Mosley had repeatedly said that on the Friday after the murder that he had been calling Elnora all morning and all day, and that when he got off work, he went and drove by her house about 3.30 in the afternoon. What hadn't occurred to me before, but I realize now, is that Elnora would have been at work all day Friday if she was alive. And Leonard Mosley knew that. So if she was supposedly at work and he had no idea anything had happened to her, why would he be calling her house all morning and day when he knows that she's not home? And why would he drive by at 3.30 in the afternoon when he knows that she's not home from work yet at that point? And if he did think that something had happened to her and he was really concerned, then when he continued to call her house with no answer, why wouldn't he then call her work to see if she was there? After all, that's where she was supposed to be that day. This entire story about him trying to call her all day when he knew that she wasn't home is a giant red flag to me. And then we did have one other question that came in through Twitter during the call-ins. Carrie Weaver on Twitter says, Was Mosley right or left-handed? Homework with the kids, no time to call tonight. Well, Carrie, I totally get the homework with the kids thing, but I'm glad you took the time to tweet me that question because it's a good question. You all heard at the end of the interview... I asked Leonard Mosley to write down his phone number. I'm sure some of you picked up on the fact that the reason I asked him to write it down is because I wanted to see if he was right or left-handed. And that's the big question that's come up. You remember back when we looked at the crime scene analysis at the beginning, it appears that Elnor's throat was slit with someone's left hand. The assumption there being that the killer was probably left-handed. Now, we don't know that for certain, the killer could have been holding her with their strong hand and cut her throat with their weak hand, or vice versa. But as I said back then, it seems like the most likely scenario would be that it would be someone who is left-handed. And the answer to the question that everyone has been wondering about for these last several months, including myself, is, is Leonard Mosley left or right-handed? And the answer is, he's right-handed. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. I want to give a special thanks to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all the music for the show. Thank you to Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to our executive producer, Mike Bussing, for screening the calls for the call-in and also doing the final edit on today's podcast. Thank you to today's sponsors, ABC's Conviction, Universal Pictures, A Girl on a Train, and 4Athletics. 
I also want to take this opportunity to let you all know that we have several new t-shirts up on the Truth and Justice Apparel website. There are a couple of colors with some new Free Ed 8s t-shirts. They use the hashtag Free Ed 8s. We also have a new Kenny Snow t-shirt. It says Free the Blizzard. It has a smiley face with a gold tooth on it. And a new redesign of the Veritas Equitas t-shirt. So go check out all the apparel either by going to our homepage, truthandjusticepod.com, and clicking the shop link, or you can go directly to the site at truthandjusticeapparel.com. I want to thank you all for all of your support, your engagements, and your opinions mean the world to me. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas into theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send those new cases into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow me on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Yeah.